0: Chapter 1 of An Angler's Hours by Hugh Tempest Sheringham. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 1. At Dawn of Day. Dark is the hour before the dawn, and surely never was dawn preceded by an hour darker than this. There is no sound of living things within the silent rooms and long lonely passages, but one may hear the many strange voices with which an ancient house complains to itself in the silent hours. The beams groan, and the panels creak, and ever and anon come the echoes of forgotten footsteps that were perhaps trodden a century ago, and whose sound has been ever since wandering up and down the world unheard, until they have found their way back to their first home. Of a truth never has an old house had better reason to complain. It has known the men of eight centuries who have passed their little hurried lives in it, have uttered their little hopes and aspirations, have wept their little tears for a moment's space, and then have passed. It has known the strange cowled race who, in the service of God, spent their days and nights in fast and vigil, and whose solemn oremus was the only sound that broke the stillness of the old grey walls. Others, too, it has known, plumed and booted and spurred, the haughty noble has strutted his brief span through its courts and passages, the thrifty merchant has wakened in the silence of night with the chinking of gold, less perishable than himself in spite of all the philosophers. These and many more have added their little paragraphs to the history of the ancient house, and it groans anew as it considers the futility of man and his works. And now there are new inmates, little feet that dance and cause many an ache to its venerable timbers, little voices that shout and sing and bid unconscious defiance to destroying time. And indeed for them, time seems to stand still, leaning on his scythe, as though he knew that before one thing he was powerless, the eternal spirit of youth. The old house has no love for youth. It groans and creaks with renewed energy, and, now and then, summons the north wind to its aid, and bangs its doors in loud discordant protest. But now the little feet and merry voices are still, for it is the hour before the dawn. Even the old house, as though it has protested enough, is sinking into slumber. But, lo, at the end of the passage appears a glimmer of light just sufficient to deepen the gloom it approaches, and a dim figure seems to accompany it. What is it? Is it a will-o'-the-wisp, imprisoned for its evil deeds by the monks of long ago? Is it that strange thing, a corpse candle, that link with another world, whose appearance betokens that death has set his icy grip on one of them that are in the house? No. As it comes nearer, it is evidently no more mystic thing than a bedroom candle, and the figure that accompanies it is the figure of a man. A burglar, think you? It may be, for he moves most cautiously. But, alas for his caution, a fearful clangor resounds through the house. The man, whoever he be, has dropped something, which bids fair to have aroused all the sleepers so he stands motionless and hardly dares to breathe. But, no, all is quiet as before, and he regains courage, stooping to pick up his dropped property. What is it? It is nothing more romantic than a boot, of a large size truly, but still only a boot. And yet, at this hour of the day, a fallen boot resounds as loudly through the house as the beating of a drum. But the sleepers sleep on still. Slowly and carefully he picks his way down the broad staircase, crosses the hall, and opens a door under a low archway. Let us follow him. If it be a burglar, we must raise an alarm. Passing in through the doorway, we seem to be in a large room but faintly discovered by his little candle, but he has lighted the gas, and now we may observe him and his surroundings. If he be a burglar he is most quaintly attired, for as he stands in his stockinged feet he is evidently clad in shooting costume. A loose Norfolk jacket, under which we catch a glimpse of a woollen jersey, does not look like the raiment of a burglar, he seems to have been expected too, for on the table in the middle of the room is a fair white cloth, and on the cloth are the materials for a meal. They are the goodly proportions of an uncut ham, a loaf of sweet white bread, a butter dish, a teapot, cup and saucer, and other aids to breakfast. The man turns towards the fender where stands a kettle on a small oil stove. He lights the stove, and, at this moment, the clock on the mantelpiece strikes three. It still lacks nearly two hours to sunrise, and by the chinks of the shutters we can see that it is yet dark. While the kettle is boiling, let us glance round the room. It is not so large as we supposed, but it is very charming. The low ceiling displays two oak beams, and a third which crosses them the walls are panelled with dark oak and on them hang a few pictures mostly of sporting subjects but not all for over the broad fireplace hangs the sistine madonna gazing as if with mild disapproval at the preparations for breakfast there are many bookcases too with that friendly appearance which the soul loveth but we may not linger among them for the kettle is boiled and the man is already at his meal Leaning against the loaf is a book, and he smiles as he reads, as if he loved it. Let us glance over his shoulder to see what it is that charms him. The sentence on which his eye is fixed is this. And in the morning, about three or four of the clock, visit the waterside, but not too near, for they have a cunning watchman, and are watchful themselves too. A quaint old sentence out of a quaint old book, clad in a quaint old sheepskin jacket. Now he has finished his breakfast, shut his book, and is already leaving the room. In the hall, he unfastens the shutters of the glass door, which opens onto the drive. Through the frosted panes comes in a faint grey light, more ghostly than the former darkness. But it is light, a twilight, which gives promise of day. He sits him down on a chair, our friend, and puts on his boots and a stout pair of leathern gaiters. This done, he opens another door, passes through it, and returns laden with many things. On his back is a great creel, in one hand a bundle of fishing-rods, in the other a camp-stool and a basket. And a hat is on his head. And now, opening the glass door, he steps out into the drive, and we, his companions, step out with him unseen. A few instants he stands drinking in the pure morning air in deep draughts, for by now morning it is, and we can see the outline of some of the nearer trees. Then he turns and walks down the drive to an ancient gateway under which he passes, and so out into the road. Following the road for some hundred yards, he turns to the right into a narrow lane, which leads abruptly downhill. Here he has to pick his way carefully, for there are many loose stones underfoot, and the morning light is not yet strong enough to show him the dangers of his path. After he has gone about a quarter of a mile along the lane, he comes to a gate on his left, over which he climbs into a field, wherein are some sleepy bullocks, who gaze at him with wondering eyes. A few yards farther, and he is at the waterside. A belt of white mist still hangs over the river, which flows beneath its level banks, noiseless, deep and strong. On this side grow rushes, whose vivid green betokens that their roots abide in no black fetid mud, but in clean, wholesome gravel. On the other side grow bulrushes, and where they are there is mud in plenty, cruel, slimy mud that, year by year, claims its hecatomb of victims from the flocks and herds that pasture among the river meads. But our honest angler has naught to do with mud, and he knows right well that fishes love it not when they may make their feeding ground on good, appetising gravel. He wastes no time, however, in inward contemplation, but strides along the bank until he comes to a little promontory of firm ground that juts out into the stream. Below this the water seems to repent of its unreasoning haste, and turns and creeps along the bank, as though it would retrace its course. This little bay, or eddy, is fringed with rushes, among which lies a tiny piece of paper, a casual waif, borne hither by the breeze, a man would say. And yet, tis not the work of nature, but of art. For last night there came one furtively with a dark lantern, who with unerring hand cast into the water at this selfsame spot ten large balls, compounded of rich bread, yielding bran, and easy clay, and finally placed the piece of paper where it is now plain to see. And he has come again in this twilight of the gods to reap the reward of his patient toils. Let us see how he sets about it. First, he places his camp stool firmly some four feet from the water's edge. Then, from the supplementary basket which he has brought, he produces three balls like to those which he offered to the fishes on the previous night, only smaller. These he deftly drops into the stream, one close to the bank, the other two about eight feet out, just where the river hesitates in its course, and then divides. Next, taking his rods and creel, he retires back into the meadow to prepare for the attack. He unties the bundle of rods and takes out the handle of his landing net, to which he fixes the net that lay in his creel. And this is wise in him. We have known anglers so impatient to begin that they have forgotten to make ready their net, and so when that mighty fish came, whose advent they so eagerly awaited, they have seen him indeed, and straightway lost him, which is more the bitter part. Next he takes from his case a mighty rod, whose joints are six, and its length as many yards. Yet it is light, for it comes from a land where a generous sun makes the canes grow tall and straight, and hollow withal. To the butt of this he affixes a large wooden reel, on which is wound a line of fair white silk, which he swiftly passes through the rings. Thereto he fastens a bottom line of fine gut, on which is a large quill float, once reft from some lamenting swan, Which he fixes ten feet from the hook. And now he arranges his lure. In his creel is a canvas bag full of rich moss, and in the moss are worms innumerable, both small and great. One of these he places on his hook, a large one, for it is a large hook, and then he takes the rod down to the water's edge. Very quietly. He drops his line in at the outer edge of the eddy where he just now cast in his ground bait. He knows that the water there is nine feet deep, and that the bullet which is on his line will be resting on the gravel while his bait is borne hither and thither by the ebb and flow. Resting this rod on the stalwart rushes, he takes another from the bundle and prepares it. Far other in kind is this no more than twelve feet long, and so light that a midsummer fairy might use it with one hand, and so frail that it would not support the dead weight of even a little fish, and it has come from far Japan. To it he fastens no reel but a line of single hair, on which is a tiny float with two small shots to balance it. Then he takes his seat on the camp stool with his landing net at his left hand and his creel beside him. On the hook of his second rod he moulds a piece of white paste, with no niggardly hand, for he is not minded to catch little fish, and drops it in not too far from the bank. He rests this rod too upon the rushes, and then he lights his pipe Meanwhile the light has been growing stronger, and in the east a pale pink flush betokens that Phoebus has awakened out of sleep and has opened his eyes. Phoebus, like two erring mortals, cannot rise from his couch in a moment. First he opens one eye, and then the other, and then he stretches himself and lies for a while, thinking that his course round the world is very weary, and that he would fain sleep a little longer. But even the gods must yield to the inexorable fates, and rise he must. To make him a bath he summons all the mists of earth and the morning dews, and see, even now the mist is quickly passing from off the river. There is need of haste, for it is a long journey to far Olympus. And then, when the god has bathed him and quaffed his morning cup of nectar, he puts on his raiment of gold with his golden bow and arrows, raises his head above the mountain tops, and lo, it is full day. Some men say one thing and some another, but we will always maintain that fishes seldom begin their breakfast before the sun has risen. Our friend has not yet had a bite. But just as the sun's orb appears above the eastern hills, his nearer float is slightly jerked. An instant, and it glides slowly beneath the surface. His hand is on the rod, and a gentle strike meets with a stubborn resistance. Then there is a glorious contest, not sudden nor dashing. But a battle of obstinacy and strength. The fish fights deep down and circles round and round, bending the little rod almost to the water. The angler can employ no force, for a single hair, even though it be the hair of beauty, can only draw to itself a resisting power by the subtlest of stratagem. Some two minutes the battle lasts, and then the circles grow shorter and shorter. The fish gradually comes to the surface, and we catch a glimpse of a broad, copper-coloured side. At last the fish is mastered, and the angler, changing his rod to the left hand, takes his net in the right. Now he rises, and, stooping down over the rushes, dips the net under the fish, and the battle is won. His pocket scales tell us that the fish weighs two pounds and a half. Though it is a bream which is not a very determined fighter, it is no small triumph to have landed so heavy a fish on a single hare. Our friend appears very well pleased, but we do not grudge him his pleasure, for we know that ever in the track of joy follow sorrow and black care. Our philosophy is proved for scarce has he baited and reset his line then his other float sinks into the depths. With hasty hand he strikes, and another is hooked. But no, it is only a paltry little eel which has absorbed both worm and hook. Had its proportions been equal to its will, it would have swallowed line rod and angler too. It is evidently no welcome guest, and it is ten to one that the angler will be a hook, the poorer, and so he is. But the eel's corpse is flung far away over the river, and maledictor resounds on the breeze. If we may adapt the words of the poet, he had not fought him in vain, but in sorry plight was he. For one eel, be it never so small, can make itself an intolerable burden to a man who holds that cleanliness is next to godliness. But he is not daunted. Swiftly he repairs his damaged tackle and rebates, Not again with a worm, but with a piece of paste so large that one would think twelve fish in these degenerate days could scarcely swallow it. It is not long before the little float again disappears, and the timely strike induces another battle. This time it is brisker, and the feeble rod is more than once in jeopardy. Cunning and patience, however, succeed, and the quarry is safely landed. This is no bream, but a fish whose ruddy fins, silver scales, and gold-flecked eyes betray the roach. And truly he is a noble sight. A pound and a quarter is his weight, but his fighting power exceeds that of his cousin the bream, who sought the death before him. Again the hook is baited, and return to the stream, and again, after no long interval, it darts under light lightning. A strike, a rush, and then a lack, a shotless, hookless line is fluttering in the air. It is not every man, if indeed any, that can capture logger-headed chub on a single hair, because his rush is the rush of a bull, and cannot be checked. This line must be repaired, for the other still lies untouched, for the bait is no meat for little fish, and great fish are slow and hard to entice. The hairline is soon made whole again, but only to meet with fresh misfortune. The float disappears, and a fish is hooked. It moves deliberately about, much as though it were a log of wood suddenly instilled with life. Long the angler humours it, And fondly hopes to have obtained the mastery, but presently the fish makes slowly but irresistibly for the middle of the river. Its opponent can only hold on, for he has no running line, and it avails him nothing. The line again parts, and he is desolate, for such are the ways of great bream. It is a sad misfortune, for, if we mistake not, he is now gone with bitter complainings to his kinsmen, and they will take warning and refrain from the deceitful feast. And indeed the angler catches nothing for more than an hour, except it be one or two small roach which are returned to the stream, that they may attain greater weight and wisdom. Nevertheless he fishes on in patience, for the soul of bream may come again, and it were pity to go home with But two fish to show for all his pains. In the meantime, there has been plenty to interest us. Far away down the river, we saw a mighty bird that rose with much flapping of wings and sailed away with its legs stretched out like a pennant behind it. That was a heron who was breakfasting on the shallows below. Perchance some labourer going forth to his work disturbed him. Perchance it was another angler though anglers at this early hour are not common. A little while ago there was a great commotion on the other side of the river. We saw many tiny fish leap out of the water in all directions, and in the midst of them was a turbulent wave caused by Master Perch, who was also breakfasting. Once indeed he came right across the river after some hapless bleak, and we saw him quite plainly. He even inspected our angler's float, but concluded that it was not good to eat and departed back to where the fish fry live. But see, what was it that came up to the surface some ten yards out, rolling mightily and displaying the tip of a dark fin and a fragment of tail? That we believe to have been a great carp for there are a few in the river, and our friend seems to think so too, for he takes up his big rod and proceeds to change the bait. He first takes off the hook and selects another from his tackle case, a small triangular with sharp bright points. From his creel he takes a little tin, and from the tin a little potato, of the sort that make lamb and green peas a dish for a king. Then he threads the potato on the hook with a small baiting needle until the hook is quite hidden, which is the easier done because the potato has been boiled and is soft. With this new bait he casts forth his line, and it is not impossible that the carp might find it to his taste, for river carp, though very cunning, may sometimes be deluded in the early morning and now his other float is gone again, and another bream comes to bank. After this he is royally busy, and he catches seven one after the other. That is the way of it, for breams stay not always in the same place, but rather wander up and down, and when they come to where the angler is, then, if he is adroit, he may catch several ere the shoal has passed him but of these several none is so heavy as the first one, although two of them are a good two pounds apiece. And after the bream he catches some more roach, handsome fellows of nearly a pound. All this while the potato has tranquilly offered its plump attractions in vain. But just now we thought we saw a slight movement of the float, such as a sudden gust of wind might cause. Yes, There it is again. Some fish is without doubt curiously examining the bait. And now the angler is placed on the horns of a dilemma. Suddenly his little float disappears. He strikes and is fast in a good fish, and at that moment his eye wanders off to the other float. Where is it? He cannot see it anywhere. Without hesitating he moves the other rod to his left hand, and seizing the big rod with his right, strikes hard. Now he is no longer in doubt as to where his float may be, for as he strikes the rod is almost torn from his hand, and the light check on the reel screams loudly as the line runs out. There is nothing for it, he must abandon the other fish, whatever it be, and use all his energies for the big one. There is no doubt that it is a big one, for it has already got twenty yards of line out and is making straight for the bulrushes on the other side. The angler is up and along the bank in an instant, running down the stream. Now he can get a cross strain on the fish, and only just in time, for two yards more and it would have reached its halt, and then farewell to it.' But he has turned it back into the middle of the river, and it fights doggedly in the deeps, with now and then another dart for the bulrushes. The battle is long and fierce, but the fish is gradually weakening, and the angler is shortening his line. Then a dire misgiving seizes him. How is he to get it out? The carp must be seven or eight pounds in weight, and his landing net is not nearly big enough. But providence is on his side, for see, along the bank another angler is hastening to his aid. He has been pike-fishing, and carries a great landing net which would hold a fellow of twenty pounds. Alas, the carp is brought close into the bank, and the newcomer has it safe in the folds of his net." The spring balance announces that it weighs seven pounds and three ounces. Its bronze armour gleams in the sun, and our friend thinks, as he surveys it, that he is a fortunate man. He is indeed, for though the anglers in the river be many, yet they that capture the river carp be very few. Some day that carp shall adorn his chamber, tricked out in a handsome case and confessing by his superscription who killed him and how. But time has meanwhile sped, and the angler bethinks himself of a further breakfast, and packs up his tackle to go. The other fish, needless to say, has departed, and taken with him most of the line. But that cannot disturb our friend's equanimity, for with fifteen fish, Weighing nearly twenty-five pounds, he can go home with a quiet mind and not be ashamed to speak with his family in the gate. His shoulders will surely ache before he gets there, but that is well, for unlimited prosperity is good for no man. And so let us leave him. Chapter 1